Welcome to the State of Health, the podcast where patients put healthcare decision makers and thought leaders in the hot seat. I'm Gunnar Esiason. This week on the State of Health, we enter the world of drug pricing, valuing innovation, and access to breakthrough medications with biotechnology investor Peter Kolchinski. Peter holds a PhD in virology from Harvard and co-founded and runs the Boston-based investment firm RA Capital Management. Last year, he wrote the book, The Great American Drug Deal, a new prescription for innovative and affordable medicines, published by Evlexa Press, and then founded No Patient Left Behind, a nonprofit whose mission is to make medicine affordable for everyone in America. It's an organization where I serve on the board. Let's talk about the state of drug pricing. All right, Peter, welcome to the state of health. Thanks for having me on the show, Gunnar. Uh, thanks, thanks for joining. So before we, we dive into it, um, tell us a little bit about No Patient Left Behind, something that I'm a part of and happy to be a part of. Um, and and where, where was your motivation coming from uh, to sort of kick off the organizations and start it up? Sure. So, you know, I'm a biotech investor. I'm a scientist by training. Uh, this has been my career, my passion, you know, finding uh, companies working on remarkable uh, projects, uh, really hopes uh, that may turn into medicine someday, right? And I've been doing it long enough that I've actually seen some of those, uh, you know, uh, you know, projects, sketches on a marker board turn into actual drugs that are saving lives, right? So when, when that happens, uh, you know, for the first time, you say, wow, I invested in that drug and now it's curing patients of hepatitis C or, or what have you. Um, you know, that, that's, you know, quite a milestone in your career. Like you were part of something big and um, to find out that not every patient can then get it, even though it's appropriate for them, um, it's maddening. And, uh, and the public doesn't necessarily see it that way. They see the industry uh, through this, uh, you know, kind of oversimplified lens of they're just in it for the money because all companies are. Um, you know, I, I'm in this community of people that are driven by, uh, you know, so much more. Um, yes, money is important. You can't do anything. You can't pursue a project if you don't have the money. And so I understand the incentives that are required in order to, you know, get worthy projects funded. But I also uh, feel like the public has misjudged the role of insurance in making these uh, well-rewarded drugs, you know, high-priced drugs, affordable to patients. And so when Congress started talking about uh, price controls in response to the high prices of uh, hepatitis C drugs in response to Turing Pharma price jacking an old drug. Now I was looking to our industry's uh, leading um, organizations like bio and pharma to address the public's concerns, engage with Washington and make a case for, well, you know, yeah, that's, uh, you know, price jacking an old drug, that's wrong. You know, let us work with you to suggest how you can uh, pass uh, various uh, laws to make that impossible. But that has nothing to do with funding innovation. You know, we, we believe that high prices are appropriate for new drugs to reward, incentivize, spur investment in the creation of more new drugs. Um, but please don't confound the two, you know, mm -hmm. price jacking an old drug and, you know, high uh, prices, you know, adequate rewards for new ones. But as for patients affording drugs like you know, the novel uh, advanced drugs for curing hep C, that's a function of insurance. We need to win insurance reform. And I wasn't hearing this argument coming clearly from the industry. You could sort of hear hints of it, 
uh, you know, what you've mostly heard from the industry was, oh, don't pass price controls. You know, our industry has a high failure rate. It's very expensive developing new drugs. But it was kind of tone deaf to the uh, root of the outcry. Patients can't afford the medicines they need. And we're seeing some drug companies price jacking old drugs. And we think the problem is high drug prices in general. The answer should have been, no patient should go without a drug that they need. For that, they need proper insurance with low out-of-pocket costs. And yes, you're right. Uh, old drugs should not be price jacked. There should not be rent-seeking behavior by the industry you know, to extract more money out of society uh, from old drugs. We should make sure that what society pays for branded drugs is a reward for continued innovation. So once a drug has collected its you know, reasonable reward period, you know, patent life's worth of reward, it should go generic. Wasn't hearing that. I wrote a, articles on this. I wrote a book on it, The Great American Drug Deal, and ultimately mm. had to put those reform ideas out there and, uh, you know, get them talked about. You can't just write a book and leave it there. You got to mobilize an effort to get the ideas out there. And so No Patient Left Behind is a nonprofit that is meant to uh, sort of capture the voices of a variety of stakeholders, but really a lot of members of industry and the investment community saying, we want patients to afford these drugs. We support insurance reform. And yes, there are certain bad practices, bad acts, uh, you know, loopholes that the drug industry is exploiting. We, are, we come from the industry, we know them, and we can uh, show you how to close them without shutting down actual innovation. In fact, if anything, by making sure all drugs go generic without undue delay, you will spur investment in the creation of more new drugs. That's what everybody wants, right? So that's what No Patient Left Behind is out there uh, trying to do. Make sure patients can afford drugs and uh, win over policymakers the idea that when you're searching for what is that pound of flesh you're gonna take from industry in exchange for uh, you know, proper insurance reform, make it the problem of old drugs uh, costing too much, not simply all drugs having a high price. So I, I want to double click on a few things here, and, and I have to actually plug the book. I read it last year, uh, The Great American Drug Deal. Loved it. I sent you an email out of the blue. That's how we got connected. Uh, and then now here we are a year later. Um, but one thing that you're suggesting is really a long-term view of the value of a drug and the value of, of uh, innovation that goes into those those products. Why is that such a foreign concept to the current drug pricing debate or you know innovation debate that seems to be in the political crosshairs? Because the current uh, debate is driven by uh, various groups concern concerns about budgets rather than societal value, right? So. In theory, uh, all of us, we are all patients. We may not be patients today, but we should be looking ahead to the day that we and our loved ones fall ill uh, from something and we are patients. But when you think in terms of budgetary uh, needs, those of us who are healthy simply see health insurance as an expense. You know, we hate it. You know, I wish I could spend less. You know, those who are patients, you know, suddenly it's like, oh, health insurance, gives me value. I need it, right? And so simply by, you know, splitting uh, ourselves into patients and non-patients, you're already 
you know, uh, sort of looking at this in completely the wrong way. What COVID, for example, did was it put all of us on, on the same playing field. We all became patients scared of the same thing. And what happened? All of a sudden, Congress's, uh, Congress and governors are telling insurance companies that you have to actually change your practices and you can't engage in surprise billing and have high out-of-pocket costs for anything COVID-related. You know, it's like, well, yeah, that's the right idea, but it's the right idea for breast cancer and Parkinson's disease too, right? You know, and we have to fund innovation and we've got to be willing to show drug companies that will pay for vaccines. It's like, yes, that's the right idea indeed, but that applies to breast cancer and Parkinson's too, right? And so COVID became this microcosm of what innovation can do to solve a problem and how to incentivize it and how to make it affordable to everybody. I mean, COVID vaccines are available to everybody without any copay. That's the right idea. Why is that not the case for every other drug that is appropriate for you know, any patient, right? And so it would be nice to broaden that thinking to a societal level where we realize that insurance companies shouldn't just be balancing this year's budget. They are our agents on behalf of all of us as a society to make today's treatments affordable to those of us who happen to need it today, as well as you know, rewarding uh, you know, innovations so that we continue to have the hope of even better treatments in the future, right? You think about a fire department. You know, a fire department is, you know, it costs a town money and uh, towns generally pay for it out of town taxes. Uh, and when somebody calls a fire department, the fire department shows up and helps them, puts out their, their home, saves their lives. You don't see fire departments charging co-payments, you know, because if they did, what if a family said, I don't have the money? Then technically the fire department, they would have to just stand there and let the house burn, but that's not who they are, right? They're like, we save lives. We can't just let you stand. Like we've got the water, we can act. But then they're told, well, no, actually, you know, if, if you offer co-payment assistance, you're a bad guy, you know, because you're just trying to, uh, you know, make people price insensitive to your services. And it's like, I'm not a bad guy. I just feel like everybody should benefit from the, the help that a firefighters can offer when they're right there, right? And so we don't put firefighters, you know, on the horns of that dilemma. We pay for, you know, the kind of protection that fire department offers collectively as a society out of town taxes. And essentially insurance premiums are a tax. Everybody should be paying insurance premiums if they can afford it or otherwise, you know, subsidized. You know, healthcare is a right, I would argue. And uh, when people need care, you wanna make sure it's appropriate. If there's some prankster who's constantly calling the fire department and wasting resources, by all means, go after them and, uh, you know, threaten them with the possibility of getting a, a bill if it turns out that, you know, they're wasteful. But, you know, as much as people think that you've got all this drug seeking behavior that you've got to discourage without a pocket cost, who fakes diabetes to get insulin? Who wants to inject themselves with insulin if they don't need it? Who fakes cancer to get cancer drugs? Generally speaking, we're into branded drugs now that are so advanced, you know, oftentimes infused, you know, are, are given to people when they're, they've already tried like several other generic drugs and it failed where they have a clearly diagnosable condition. I mean, cystic fibrosis, how do you get that one wrong? 
right? And a doctor says, you have this disease, this drug is appropriate for you. Oftentimes an insurance company even requires a prior authorization for them to review the prescription to confirm you've indeed got the disease, you know, cystic fibrosis, to confirm that you've got the appropriate mutation, you know, for the drug, uh, you know, that your doctor's prescribing. And then once they've confirmed it's appropriate, they still hit you with an out-of-pocket cost. To what? Deter you? To make you think twice about doing what, in fact, they agree is the right thing? Well, fortunately, most people in America, you know, have an income or their family has an income. They're able to afford their co-pays, but there's that minority, that 15% without insurance, the extra 5, 10% that are underinsured, they struggle. And those are the people we shouldn't be leaving behind. We don't need to leave them behind. America's wealthy enough to close that gap and to leave no patients behind, right? And it just requires a bit of insurance reform. We already did it once when Congress said, you know what, it's wrong for insurance plans to discriminate against somebody based on a pre-existing condition. You change employers, you take your cystic fibrosis with you because you know you can't leave it behind and you sign up uh, with a new insurance plan and they say, oh no, you already had that disease before, we're not covering it. Well, that's just wrong, right? You know, we recognize that a person can't do anything about their pre-existing conditions. So insurance plans should account for it. And as patients play uh, <laughs> musical chairs, ultimately all insurance plans are impacted similarly by the distribution of, of disease burden that's out there. So Congress outlawed discrimination on the basis of pre-existing condition. But what are out-of-pocket costs if not discrimination on the basis of an emergent condition, which is like the very thing insurance is supposed to insure you against. So once Congress and the public realizes like, you know what, insurance just isn't insurance if you can't afford inappropriately prescribed treatment, then just fix that. Truly making what we pay for everybody's healthcare a societal expense coming out of everybody who can afford premiums. And if they really can't afford premiums, you know, then they're, they're getting subsidies. Maybe they're on Medicaid basically at that point. But one way or the other, you know, America as a whole pays for you know, the protection of everybody in our community, much like a town pays for a fire department that helps every family out. Then the only question that we have is, is what society is uh, paying for a given drug? Is it worth it, right? That's the question. And it's no longer, is it worth it for this patient, but is it worth it for our society? Which gets to the question of what is the value that our drug offers to a society? And it's oftentimes a lot more value than just what it's offering to that one patient. So now I, I, wanna, I wanna dive in on that from the societal level. We're entering this world of highly personalized medications. I and mean, you just look at FDA approvals over the last several years. Uh, more and more drugs being approved for rare diseases or very small patient populations yeah. or highly tuned medications um, that, that I take based on what my, uh, you know, my genetic mutation looks like. Can society sustain that change? I think the question is, can society afford not to continue to incentivize the biomedical progress that is possible? Right? We can wish for drugs that uh, work for all patients, Dr drugs that just work for all cancer, not just lung cancer, but all cancer. That's nice. It's nice to hope for that. You know, it's kind of like hoping that every player who steps up to the plate hits a home run, 
it's nice to hope for that. Um, but you can't build uh, a, uh, an entire ecosystem of innovation uh, and a sustainable, you know, major league baseball, uh, uh, you know, industry, essentially. You can't build an entire baseball league off of only paying baseball players for home runs because it's too much risk. They're too rare. You know, the fact is single base hits, doubles, they're worth it. You can build wins on those. And so when you get a drug that works for just one-tenth of people with a given disease, that's a step forward. That's one-tenth that's been addressed. And then, you know, work on another tenth and another tenth. The question is, when you look at the math on the big picture uh, and you say, what if we get to the goal of helping everybody in 10 baby steps instead of one giant leap? And we pay for each one of these drugs a high price for the fewer number of patients. We reward each one with $5 billion a year even of revenues for 15 years. That's $75 billion. And there's 10 such drugs. And so it's what, $750 billion of branded drug revenue that will be given to these 10 drugs. But at the end of it, they'll all be generic and we'll have solved the problem. Is it worth it? Well, let's take a look. What is the you know, total societal burden of Alzheimer's, of Parkinson's, of all of these you know, different diseases? You know, and what you come out with is, wow, you can afford to offer a really high reward as long as it's for a fairly short time in the grand scheme of things, you know, 10, 15 years. You, know, you can offer a big reward uh, to a lot of drugs that represent relative baby steps because if we don't do anything about these diseases, they will cost us trillions, right? Trillions of dollars, tens of trillions of dollars in the case of something like Alzheimer's, right? And you can see it clearly in COVID. Uh, you know, some groups like ICER that were doing the math on what an incremental drug that would help uh, patients with COVID is worth, uh, were so focused on doing this bottoms up math to like calculate a day in the hospital and how many patients are treated that they failed to miss the obvious message that when the whole world is scared of COVID, it causes tens of trillions of dollars of economic uh, inactivity of loss, of, you know, uh, globally. The United States lost, you know, uh, trillions of dollars of economic activity. Therefore, you could have easily said, hey, uh, I will pay a trillion dollars, whether it's for one drug or spread out across 10 if it allays the public's anxieties about COVID and restores economic activity, we'd be coming way out ahead. Simple back of the envelope math. Some economists did it and would write articles, even the New York Times making that simple point. But the health economists that are focused on the you know, micro, it's like, well, just looking at this drug, is it worth it? Totally missed it, right? So I wrote an article not too long ago, basically saying like, uh, you know, um, ICER, uh, it makes it sound like, uh, you know, an increment of progress in Alzheimer's, you know, can't, you can't charge more than a few thousand dollars per patient for it. And they said, if you could just cure dementia, it's worth $70,000 per patient per year, you know? And it's like, well, you ignore the fact that when you pay that for a drug, it's only for a finite period of time until it goes generic. So if you're conceding that it's worth paying $70,000 per patient per year forever, you know, even a hundred years will be paying that. Uh, for anybody with Alzheimer's, then there's like 6 million people 
per year that would be managed in this way times 70,000, uh, that would be $420 billion per year, which over a century is $42 trillion. And it's like, how about we just uh, pay $7 trillion to uh, the drug industry in the form of paying for 30 drugs, each one of which uh, you know, solves 1 30th of the problem, you would be able to give each one of those 30 drugs a reward commensurate with the biggest reward ever given to any drug, Humira, right? And you would still end up spending a collective roughly $7 trillion for those 30 drugs and have come out way ahead uh, you know, relative to not inventing those drugs and just spending money on long-term health facilities and hospitals and you know, the, the burden on families of having to look after somebody with uh, Alzheimer's dementia. So even ICER's own math, when they get all micro, they think that they're coming up with some sort of a cap and saying, actually don't charge too much, but their own math can be revealed you know, to basically be justifying much, much higher rewards for innovation. They're just not looking at it big picture wise as a, you know, from a societal standpoint. So yeah, I can afford incremental innovation for sure. And so I, I want to, I want to stick in here for, for those who may not know what or who ICER is, it's the, the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review, which is a bit of a self-proclaimed drug pricing watchdog. If, if, if that's what, if that's really the best way to call it. And they use um, an economic tool called the quality adjusted life year as part of their, their benchmark to understand the value of a drug and to normalize very different conditions uh, on a, uh, on an economic level. And you're, you are, you're criticizing their methodology right now and something that I've criticized as well. And I'm sure our listeners probably know that. What is wrong with their uh, methodology? Who else uses their methodology? And is there a better way to capture the value add for patients and families benefiting from high-priced drugs? So the, the first thing to remember is that um, the market represents the will of millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of, of people. When an insurance plan chooses to cover something, they technically, in many cases, could choose not to cover it. They just know that a lot of people would then say, I don't want to sign up with that insurance plan. Employers would say, wow, I think I'd have a hard time retaining employees if they knew I signed up with a plan that didn't cover insulin, modern insulins, you know, uh, or drugs for cystic fibrosis. So, you know, there's market pressure on the buyers to conform to, you know, society's preferences. What health economists and economists uh, in general oftentimes try to do is to understand why might society's decisions feel rational to society? Because sometimes they're subconscious. I mean, we're talking like a massive Ouija board that's you know, collectively representing the will of millions of people, right? And so they try to uh, do their equations to figure out what is it that society is saying we value um, when uh, it, they choose to pay for certain things. When the town pays to build a fire department, what must the value of that fire department be? You know, that town, like, it doesn't make sense. There's, you know, 10,000 homes and only five of them catch fire for what they're spending on the fire department. They could more cheaply just hand cash to those five families every year. And yet what you then realize is, well, wait a second, five homes burn, but 
9,995 other homes are worried that this is the year when their home will burn. And they all feel better every single year knowing there's a fire department there, even if they don't need it. And so you suddenly realize like, okay, maybe we're paying for that fire department both to save a certain number of lives and save a certain number of homes, but also to provide reassurance to everybody else who's worried about that. I mean, think about COVID treatments, right? If only 1% or maybe less of people who get infected are actually gonna die or suffer anything serious, then really like uh, the other 99% that are seeking vaccines and drugs, you know, uh, and hope that there are drugs available, they don't really need them. Except nobody knows who is gonna be in the unlucky 1%. We're all saddled with that burden of anxiety, right? We all, without antibiotics, we'd all be worried about going on a hike and getting a scratch and that being the end of us or our loved ones. Knowing that those antibiotics are there reassures us we can engage in all kinds of activities. We can go skiing and risk broken bones knowing that's okay, there's modern medicine, we'll get through it, right? So ICER doesn't look at almost any of that. What they would ask in the case of an antibiotic is what is the value of the life of the person who was saved by that antibiotic? You know, what is the value of the home of the family that was saved by that fire department? And then they would say, well, the town's spending an inordinate amount on this fire department. The lives of these five families or their homes aren't worth it. It's illogical. You shouldn't want it. And ICER goes a bit further. They, they go as far as what other groups like NICE in the UK uh, and similar groups in Canada and Australia do. They, they're trying to get policymakers to actually act on their, you know, I would argue, oversimplified math. And they're trying to say, don't build fire departments. Let's talk other towns out of building fire departments. In our case, every drug is like a fire department of. You've got the fire department of hepatitis C and the fire department of cystic fibrosis, right? And so based on the fact that, look at all of these drugs that are overpriced relative to their, their societal value, we really should you know, not be willing to spend so much on drugs. Sure, that'll reduce the interest in innovation, but it'll be innovation that wasn't worth having anyway. Like it all would have been overpriced. And yet what they're missing is the reassurance value of that fire department for everybody else. They're missing the fact that without you know, some drugs to uh, you know, treat and save the lives of anybody who happens to have severe COVID, we will all be stuck in our homes, you know, hesitating to engage with one another. And there'll be a tremendous loss of economic, economic activity. You know, without, it's kind of like in the case of an electric car, uh, having ICER tell you, you shouldn't buy it. It costs more than a standard. Completely ignoring the fact that, uh, you know, electric cars have lower maintenance costs and lower fuel costs. And plus there's that hard to calculate value of, contributing in some way to saving the planet from climate change, right? A real economist would say, huh, it seems to cost more. You know, it seems to be an irrational choice, yet people do it over and over again. What is it that they're valuing? Oh, looks like we overlooked the lower maintenance costs. Oh, looks like we overlooked the lower fuel costs. And then some might even say, well, even after factoring that in, it still seems like it's overpriced yet people are still buying it. Why is that? Oh, people seem to value saving the planet. I know, let me build a hundred year model. Oh, wow, that's you know a hundred trillion dollars of damage that's facing us over the next century or whatever, if we don't do something about climate change. So here's a bunch of people that are making individual purchasing decisions 
reflecting that they care about that problem. So if ICER could start to care about more than just the quality of life and you know, longevity of just the people who are treated, and to instead say, what is the good that this breakthrough will offer to society as a whole over the next 50 or 100 years, and you know, to their families, to everybody else, it offers reassurance to all of us that if we have a child born with cystic fibrosis, there'll be good treatments for them that won't be you know, the same kind of uh, disease burden as it has been in the past. That has gotta be relief to some extent for everybody. You know, what about caregivers who previously you know, had to take time off from work to take their kids in for appointments during exacerbations? You know, and now their kids are gonna be healthier. They won't have exacerbations and the parents will be able to hold down a job more easily. Does ICER factor in that caregiver spillover? The answer is no, yet it's clearly a value. Uh, so besides you know, just focusing in on the quality, which is its own flawed metric, but uh, you know, there's so many other values that uh, a biomedical breakthrough offers uh, to, you know, to the family, to all of us in society. Uh, and you know, hugely, there's the fact that it goes generic. You know, mm -hmm. so, uh, it's kind of like a mortgage on a home versus paying rent for a very similar kind of uh, you know, house. A mortgage may be higher than your rent, but a mortgage is finite. It's why people choose to pay more in mortgage than in rent. If you're only looking at it as a budgetary decision for this year's budget, you might choose to stay in a rental. And the trouble is that's, that could be a really disastrous financial decision because it means you'll still be paying that rent and odds are it's rising you know, for the rest of your life and you'll have nothing to pass on to your children. But when our parents paid, uh, you know, branded drug prices for like Lipitor, they then passed on to us generic Lipitor. They basically paid off the mortgage on, on those uh, drugs and then, uh, you know, passed them on to us. So whatever we choose to pay, uh, you know, the branded prices for is an investment towards owning a public good that we then pass on to our children. Hospitals, meanwhile, are that rental apartment. If you don't invent new drugs, you will be managing cystic fibrosis, sickle cell disease, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's. You'll be managing that in the hospital setting, in the long-term care facility setting. And those things, they don't go generic. They are rent on society forever. So I think it, if we don't invest in biomedical innovation, if we don't offer up the rewards of having society as a whole through insurance be willing to pay for branded drugs, you know, clearly <clears throat> a lot more than it costs to simply manufacture that incremental dose. If, uh, if we don't do that, we in fact aren't gonna be saving ourselves money. We'll save money this year, but it's kind of like trying to save by not investing in a mortgage when you're living in a high rent and a rising rent apartment. It's a terrible decision. We'll be right back with Peter Kolchinski. You make a lot of good points here. And, you know, I, to provide listeners with a case study with what I think you're describing in, you know, I'll use the example that I know best myself, you know, between the ages of 22 and 28, I was averaging three, four, five times per year when I was suffering either a pulmonary exacerbation, a hospitalization, a medical procedure, you know, which requires a full day off work, you go down to interventional radiology, you're utilizing healthcare resources in the hospital over and over and over again to the point where 
when I was stuck in that routine, it was like, dear God, am I ever going to get out of this? And then all of a sudden a breakthrough drug comes along and it's gone. And then I'm enrolling in graduate school, looking towards a, a wedding, looking towards the rest of my life, looking towards home ownership. You know, those parts of life, I think, are not included in these economic analyses. And to me, I think that's what's so frustrating about this broad you know, argument that, you know, you've been presenting for the last 20 minutes about drug pricing, you know, there's so much more to life than just the one individual piece of this, of this, of this larger, you know, pie that is life. And I think the thing that you say that, you know, you said so well, is that looking to the next generation of people with cystic fibrosis, they will not grow up with the issues that I grew up with, you know, the medical trauma, the repeated interventions, encounters with the medical system, different prescriptions, you know, it just goes on and on and on. Um, but the next generation will, will sort of capture the, the same value that I'm experiencing now with the CFTR modulators that I've taken, but they'll be doing it at a fraction of the cost because it's, we'll have gone generic. So that I think if I can encapsulate the argument that I think that you're trying to make, that's pretty much it in the, in the form of a case study. Yeah, I think if you take a societal perspective, you know, you think about 330 million people in the United States, right? You can think about the billions of people on earth, right? And realize that the drug entire biomedical industry, uh, if you look at it as just this, uh, a single, um, you know, ecosystem, like imagine that it, it's just this uh, group of people that are toiling away you, and, and you put them all in several square miles. You know, it requires, if you just look at its overall budget, about $550 billion of revenues. Uh, you know, some amount of that goes towards just the cost of goods, you know, the production of whatever medicines come, come out of that. Uh, it spends some on uh, sales and marketing and uh, general administrative costs, you know, just the business side of things. And then spends about $160 billion a year on R&D, dwarfing the NIH uh, budget. I mean, the NIH spends about 40 some billion dollars a year on biological sciences, basic sciences in general, and really just a few billion dollars a year on any kind of like clinical research, which is really essential to developing a product. So $160 billion of innovation, creativity, a lot of stuff that people like to say is like, well, that seems wasteful and that seems wasteful. But the thing about innovation is it's always gonna look wasteful in retrospect. But when you're in the middle of it, you can't be certain of what's gonna work and what's not. And sometimes, somebody fails and you say, well, I think they failed for a reason that, you know, I can fix. And so you see what looks like a lot of redundant failure, but it's never quite totally redundant. And uh, out of that emerge ballpark 40 to 50 new drugs per year. And uh, frankly, it doesn't matter where on earth this happens. If the, if the United States wants to somehow come down on the biomedical industry and for some reason, China picks up the, the ball and sort of starts incentivizing it, but requires that companies be based there. You can imagine how over the several decades, biomedical innovation shifts to being based mostly in China. The thing is, is unlike the weapons industry, when a drug is invented anywhere on earth, it's good for patients everywhere on earth. It's just a matter of time before it gets to everybody. Like why wouldn't a Chinese company wanna sell that medicine you know, to help uh, patients with a disease in the US or wherever, right? So, uh, the, this ecosystem happens to be disproportionately based in the United States. Uh, and right now it happens to be disproportionately incentivized and fueled by the United States. Those $550 billion of, 
of revenues, you know, $280 billion of that comes from the United States alone, right? So that's ballpark half. Uh, and the entire rest of the world supports the other half while using a lot more pills and a lot more, you know, syringes. So it's less profitable, right? You've got a much higher volume of drugs used outside the US at smaller prices, but you know, every bit of uh, revenue helps, right? So all uh, those countries are at least pitching in, but the United States is definitely the primary mortgage payer, shall we say, uh, you know, for building all these drugs that emerge out of this. And uh, 500, you know, $280 billion a year, that's less than $1,000 per person you know, in, in the US. That's about 1.4% of America's GDP, right? That's about 1.4% of uh, the average or median, I guess, no, I guess it's average income per person. That's it, 1.4% for something on the order of uh, like $70 a month per person. You can fuel an entire ecosystem of innovators that are doing nothing but thinking about how to solve unsolved medical problems. We are all signed up. We've all signed up uh, you know, for that. We're all paying $60 a month out of insurance, $60, $70 a month out of insurance or taxes or whatever. Some people who can't afford to pitch in, their share is paid for you know, by others out of their taxes. You know? But that's all that it is. And uh, we are similarly doing that for Netflix. Netflix provides us with all the content that they've got. So that's like all the generic drugs that we've got. And they're investing you know, all of the, uh, a lot of the money from the subscriptions they pull in, in new content. So Netflix is taking care of our quality of life entertainment wise. And then, you know, and you've got, I mean, God knows how much in this country is spent, you know, well more than we spend on drugs on entertainment you know, the movie industry, the amusement park industry, like you look at all of that, plus you get tobacco, that does absolutely no good for anybody, but it's fun. The alcohol industry, I mean, the, the whole, like, our entire budget of 100% is made up of stuff that when you think about like, you know, 1.4% of our budget going to incentivize all this creativity in this ecosystem of biomedical innovation, and then there's the rest, surely, you know, must we be going after this one ecosystem saying, you know, you're not worth it. Let's figure out how to cut you, you know, uh, you know, before we go examining the merits of all the other spend elsewhere. So if drug companies are overcharging, and certainly when you take an old drug and you price jacket, you are, that should be stopped. But as long as this biomedical ecosystem, this bubble is churning out 40 to 50 new drugs, that will be expensive temporarily and then permanently leave our healthcare upgraded permanent for the rest of all time humanity will be able to treat that disease better than before that drug existed then do we really want to you know shut off the fuel the incentives and the fuel that uh keep that ecosystem going those millions of people who are trained in the biological sciences and advanced drug production do we really want to say no we'd rather you know uh you know, shut this down. We want you to get jobs doing something else. Well, doing what? We want you to develop more social media apps. You know, we want you to uh, go and, and make more uh, movies. You know, 
what other part of the economy are we trying to redirect all of these brilliant creative uh, you know, workers towards? Because that's all that will happen. They will simply say, okay, I get it. You don't want to incentivize us to work on making new drugs. What would you like? Where can I find a job? What still pays? Right? And I just can't think of too many other things on our little island that we live in on earth that's more important than uh, continuing to tackle the diseases that scare us, that plague us, that hurt our children mm -hmm. and our parents and maybe someday ourselves, right? So I, I hope that our policymakers will recalculate the math, realize that in fact, the societal value of a lot of these drugs that groups like ICER say are overpriced, the societal value is in fact way higher than the uh, market prices charged by drug companies, that as long as drugs go generic, they are way better value than leaving people condemned to be treated in hospitals for forever, right? And that they ultimately just make sure that uh, what society spends on branded drugs goes towards new branded drugs, you know, drugs in their first 10 to 15 years uh, on the market. And that you, uh, you know, disallow the kind of rent seeking that has started to emerge where certain drug companies have figured out how to milk old drugs and get really high prices. You know, like if your bank called you up as you were about to make your final mortgage payment and said, ah, actually I found this tricky little loophole here. You owe me three more years. Like that has nothing to do with building you a house. Mm -hmm. You know, that's simply predatory behavior, right? And it's possible to legislate that predatory behavior away without simply saying all mortgages, you know, will be price controlled and nobody should have to pay more than $100,000 to buy a home. Because when you dictate prices like that, all that will happen is no one will build homes anymore. The State of Health will be back in a moment. We'll let you go here after this last question, but it's my the, the last pressing issue that I think I want to touch on here is what does what does the world look like if Congress, from your opinion, and maybe mine as well, pursues the wrong path on drug pricing reform. You know, I look at the antibiotic market dysfunction that presently exists, an, yeah. an issue very close to my own heart where I'm living with a gram-negative respiratory infection that just seemingly won't be addressed. You know, what, what does the world look like if the innovation ecosystem is clamped down on? Our kids will have healthcare that's no better than what we have today. That's what will happen. There won't be any drugs that get uninvented. So if somebody, uh, you know, simply goes after Trikafta and says it shall be, you know, priced much lower, or we're going to go off the ICER price or whatever, we're going to mandate that the price be, you know, dropped by 80%, you know, uh, then you're not going to suddenly like not get Trikafta. Like it'll still be there, right? Um, but no investor will be able to justify pursuing uh, the development of better drugs. You know, they, they'll simply say like, wow, if they weren't willing to pay that price uh, for a temporary time for a drug like Trikafta. What hope is there for us that if we develop, you know, uh, an inhaled antibiotic that um, frankly is not going to be used that much outside of uh, cystic fibrosis and a, a few other uh, relatively uh, rare cases, um, we'd have to charge a lot of money. I mean, maybe we'd have to charge, it would be so effective, it would like cure people with gram negative, And then uh, as they stay on track after, like they continue to not, you know, 
uh, get infected with that again, maybe you'd have to charge $400,000 for a course of that antibiotic, but that's it. Like you would basically cure them of that gram negative and maybe you'd need to treat them with that like once every 10 or 15 years. That would be amazing, right? <laughs> but could you imagine the reaction to like, what a, a two week course of an inhaled antibiotic costs that much? No, that's too much. And yet, you know, uh, once you have that antibiotic, knowing it'll go generic in 15 years, you will have hopefully permanently addressed the gram negative, uh, you know, disease burden of cystic fibrosis patients for the rest of time. Now we know that may not be true. There might be resistance, but certainly you could address it, you know, for a very long period of time. So let's make sure that we do when, when we're second guessing, whether it's worth it for us as a society to incentivize the development of a given uh, advance, let's make sure we're doing math that really captures the total value to us of uh, that so that we don't accidentally uh, declare, well, we want that, but we're only paying X because if X turns out to be too low to get what we want, all that will happen is you won't get what you want. That's it. You're not going to get that breakthrough for a low price. You're simply not going to get that breakthrough. And it's not because people don't want to give it to you. It's because the NIH researcher with a brilliant idea for what could be a really great gram-negative treatment can't attract the hundreds of millions of dollars and sometimes more you know, to just find out if his or her hypothesis is correct. No investor, we're talking like teachers with their pension, no investor is going to risk their money on that knowing that even if you succeed, even if the FDA approves it, there'll be some committee that declares that, yes, but we're only going to give you this small uh, reward, right? So, uh, you know, if you can tell me that my chances of success are 100%, I can promise you, like, drug prices would be lower. But you don't get that guarantee. You take your chance, and more often than not, you lose all your money. And there's no government committee to say, well, you know how we you know, impose price controls when you succeed, you know, we also give you back, you know, almost all your money when you fail. Like they don't do that, right? <laughs> so you eat all your losses when you lose and, uh, you know, you have to therefore get a sizable uh, reward the few times that a company succeeds. And investors have large portfolios of these companies and therefore biotech as a whole is profitable. It's worth it. Uh, but if, all your winners are going to get smacked down with price controls while you're stuck with all the losses of your losers. That's a terrible portfolio. Nobody's going to want to have a portfolio of those kinds of things. So no innovation, you know, and the moment they do that to even one area, you know, the moment somebody imposes price controls on, you know, just cystic fibrosis drugs, uh, as Australia has with Trikafta essentially saying like, no, it's not worth it. Immediately people don't just say like, Oh, well, I won't invest in drugs for, cystic fibrosis anymore, they're going to say, well, then you're probably not going to value sickle cell disease. You're not going to value beta thalassemia or all these other diseases that, you know, we could tackle. So good to know. Let's just shut down the pursuit of progress across many different diseases, right? Uh, oftentimes these price controls, you know, that they're expressed in the form of what's the upper limit will pay per quality. Well, that's its own oversimplified measure of the benefit of a drug, right? And so if, uh, if a drug, uh, you know, slightly improves the quality of, uh, of somebody's life, doesn't extend 
their, um, you know, the, their life, but for some reason significantly reduces the, uh, the burden on caregivers. Uh, maybe the other drug that it was uh, replacing is a, an infused drug and it constantly required caregivers to bring them into an infusion center and your drug is an oral pill that you, know, you can give or at-home self-injectable, ICER you know, won't capture that, right? And so they'll calculate that that drug's not worth it. Condemning all the caregivers to continuing you know, to have to uh, you know, drive in uh, the patient and you know, keep taking time off of work, undermining their own careers, et cetera. So it's important that you know, uh, when we allow health economists to step in and here, let me do the math for you, that they don't do the wrong math for us. Because more often than not, our gut reaction to what's working and what's not is actually correct. It's much more representative of the value that that drug offers. And it's the health economists that are rushing to tell you how little you should be able to pay for it that will exclude a bunch of values and indeed tell you that this drug isn't worth it. And the trouble is if a policymaker then says, aha, they say that it's overpriced, I will now deny you that drug now it's like, wow, I really regret hiring the wrong health economists to calculate the value of that drug to me. Mm. So patients have to get involved and make sure that if health economists are gonna be allowed to tell us when a drug is over or underpriced, make sure that they're the right kind of health economists that take a broad view of societal value and you know, I, I can name names. You know, these would be people like Peter Newman at Tufts uh, and Darius Lakdawalla at the Schaefer Center. Like there, there's a number of uh, these health economists out there, but they're not at ICER. Maybe by design. <laughs> but uh, Peter, thanks for thanks for joining the show. This was great. We ran a little long, but uh, appreciate you coming on. Thanks for having me again. All right, take care. That's all for this week. Be sure to join us next week. New episodes come out every Wednesday morning wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow me on Twitter at G17Esiason. You can check out my website at GunnerEsiason.com. If you liked what you heard today, be sure to subscribe to The State of Health and then leave a rating and a review. A big thank you to Peter Kolchinski for today's interview. You can check out No Patient Left Behind on the web at NoPatientLeftBehind.org or on Twitter at NPLB underscore org. That's NPLB underscore org. The State of Health is produced by Bob Dwyer. Thanks to Odyssey for making this podcast possible. We'll see you next week.